Thank you for having me. Uh, I always enjoy speaking at the uh, PA Society, SDPA, and uh, the GDPA, since we're in Georgia. Uh, this is the SDPA, and we're going to talk about melanoma today. Um, more of an update, but also a little bit of review uh, on melanoma and also on our patients' melanoma. What do we do with our patients with melanoma? Um, I'd like to make this conversational. If you have questions, raise your hands. If I see you, I'll, I'll call on you, and we can talk as we go. I think that would be the best way to do it. But I have no conflict of interest uh, in this, uh, uh, for this talk. But the first thing we have to talk about, actually, is the acquired nevi. The nevi that are not melanomas. To know what a melanoma is, we should really distinguish what a non-melanoma is, what not melanoma is. We just saw dermoscopy. We just had to talk about dermoscopy and how important it is to distinguish between the two. Um, one thing I tell my PAs is that if you have any questions, and I'm saying that off the bat, biopsy it. Really, nobody's going to fault you to, from, for biopsying a normal mole. People will fault you for missing melanoma. And things are not always as easy as you, as you think they might be. So acquired nevi could be junctional, intradermal, or could be compound nevi. When you look at compound, these involve both the epidermis and the dermis. They appear about 6 to 12 months of age. Uh, they enlarge with the body. So we have parents that come in and tell me this has been growing. And the first thing I ask, has it been growing with the kid or out of proportion? It's a difficult question to answer, but that reassures them that moles are supposed to grow uh, with their kid. But the second and third decade is when the peak of new uh, moles, of new nevi, um, is at. When you start having new nevi, mid-30s or above, I pay a little bit more attention to them than if it were just a regular um, mole in a 20-year-old. Lighter skin has more moles. And when you look at the uh, etiology, it's uh, the melanocyte drop down from the epidermis to the dermis. There are two origins. Neva melanocytes in the epidermis and dermis from the epidermal uh, uh, melanocytes uh, come from the Schwann cells of nerve. This is actually a neuro, uh, neuroendocrine cell. This is why melanoma, when we talk about melanoma, is so different than other skin cancers. This is why I always say once a melanoma patient, always a melanoma patient. It behaves differently than what we're used to in basal cell carcinomas or squamous cell carcinomas. It can be also originating from defective melanoblasts. These are usually benign. So two main origins of it. Okay, so we look at the common nevus. The clinical appearances can be papillomatous, dome-shaped, pedunculated, flat-topped. It could be skin-colored. It could be pink. It could be pigmented. Uh, it could be round or oval, but it usually is well demarcated with smooth borders. We look always at the borders. We don't want to look at, at size, but demarcation and, and non-jagged edges are important when we look at moles. What do we do with common nevi? We observe them. The majority we observe. Um, but sometimes we take them out, mostly for cosmetic uh, reasons, but also for irritation, and also in areas that are, that are difficult to see. So if I have a patient who has had a history of melanoma, is concerned about a mole that is really tough to see, I will take that off if they're concerned about it. A typical appearance, typical evolution, anything that's changed or that makes us a little bit nervous, we take it out, okay? Now, we excise, we shave, but we also destroy these moles. Um, I'm not a big fan of destructions. I'm not a big fan of lasering moles or desiccating moles or cryoing moles. Um, but it's done, and it's accepted. It's actually just another way of doing things. But please remember that when you use destructive method, you didn't get rid of the nevus. And a nevus that looks good today doesn't mean that it's going to be good for the rest of the life of the nevus, if you may. So if you do something like a laser, 
if you do something like a destruction, always keep an eye on these things. When it comes back, this was never sent to pathology, so we don't know what it was. So we always keep an eye on these things. Moving on to congenital nevi. We have size criteria for congenital nevi. Small size, which is less than 1.5 centimeters. The medium size, up to 20 centimeters. And the large size, 20 centimeters plus. Congenital nevi are important. They're not all melanomas, but they do increase the risk of melanoma in our patients. They're similar to acquired nevi. Uh, they can have hair. They can be smooth, pebbly, verrucous, lobular, and usually have a uniform pigment pattern. Now that is important. When we see patients, whether they're kids or adults, with congenital nevi, most of the time, they're fine. We tell them this is okay. It's a quote-unquote birthmark. However, if the birthmark evolves in any way, it needs to be reevaluated. And that is something important to relate to your patients because patients tend to believe that if you tell them this is good now, it's going to be good forever. And congenital nevi definitely um, can, can have issues within them. The risk of the congenital nevi to have a melanoma, the malignant potential, is proportional to the size. So if the congenital nevus is more than 5% of the body, you're going to have an increased risk. It's very high if it's more than 50% of having a melanoma if you have a very large congenital nevus. So the lifetime risk of large congenital nevi in patients of getting a melanoma is about 4.5 to 10%. Um, and these usually happen before puberty. So the majority get it before puberty at 50% by age 5 and 70% by age 10. So please be aware of the congenital nevi in kids. And always inform the patients in an educational session. Tell them this is a mole. It's most likely fine. It's he's, he or she is born with it. And it will most likely act fine. But please let me know if it changes in any way, shape, or form. And please monitor these things. I do see these kids once a year just to check the congenital nevus, especially if it's a large congenital nevus. I may do it even every six months. Of course, we have to talk about cosmetic issues with these kids, and we have to talk about functional consideration as well with these kids. What do we do if we take a big mole out that's, that's uh, affecting um, joints? So all of them should be documented at birth, meaning if you see them for the first time, measure them, describe them, put them in the notes, so somebody else, if they're not always with us, they can follow up with somebody else, can get the note and see if something has changed. Um, and anything that's typical should be considered for for excision. Now, it's not always easy. If you have something covering the whole back of a kid, you can't, really, you can't really take it out. But when they're small, they're easy to take out. And we don't have to take them out uh, when they're young, but sometimes I take, I take congenital nevus just for the heck of it out so I don't have to worry about it anymore, so the patient doesn't have to worry about it anymore. Okay, any questions so far? Let's talk about dysplastic nevi. We saw... Um, dermoscope pictures of dysplastic nevi a little bit earlier this afternoon. But dysplastic nevi are typical appearing melanocytic tumors that have intraepidermal melanocytic dysplasia. It could be precursor to melanoma, potentially. It also can be and is a marker of increased melanoma risks. So don't ignore dysplastic nevi. Now, we don't know if a dysplastic nevus is going to progress to melanoma. We don't even know if it progresses, how fast it progresses. So are we sure that a severe dysplastic nevus is always going to become melanoma if we don't take it out? Not necessarily. Are we ever going to find out? Probably not, because I wouldn't want that left on my body to see if it's going to progress to melanoma. But it definitely is a marker uh, for melanoma. So outside of familiar melanoma, familiar, mel mel fili familiar malignant melanoma syndrome, uh, 1.8 to 4.9% of adults have dysplastic nevi. 
that's actually quite a bit. If we see a lot of patients, and these are the guys, remember, we, we see a, um, a biased proportion of patients, the patient who come to see us because the mole is changing. Quite a bit of our patients have dysplastic nevi. They can be large moles. They can be appearing at the end of the first decade. And um, they develop usually in the 20s, and they change. They move. Um, it doesn't have much to do with um, sunlight factors. Dysplastic nevi don't have much to do with the way the skin acts with sunlight and with sun. How do they happen? Usually it's faulty differentiation. It could be genetic, more likely it's genetic. It may be influenced by UV rays. It may be influenced by endogenous factors and hormones and environmental factors. We don't really understand them very well. We can have the fried egg appearance. We can have the dark pigmentation, um, multiple different colors, targeted lesions, uh, irregular outlines, and five millimeter or more, you know, the ABCDs. They don't always have to have every one of these. They could be very small. We've had severe dysplastic nevus. I get it quite a bit, actually. Severe dysplastic nevi that are one to two millimeters. If something has different colors, if something doesn't, doesn't look um, very uh, homogeneous, if there is the ugly duckling, if patient has all um, light nevi and one of them is just dark and we don't know why, but when you look at it in and of itself looks okay, you biopsy that because it doesn't, why should it be different? And these get surprisingly high results of dysplastic nevi. Um, by the way, dark is not always the bad thing. Uh, I've had melanomas that were light. Patient had a bunch of dark nevi, they all were scary. There was one that just looked very bland. I couldn't figure out why. Biopsy that was a melanoma. It can happen. So what do we do with dysplastic nevi? Periodic examinations. Monthly self-examinations are important. It's easier to have our female patients do it. I tell them, you know, you do your breast exam every month, at least you're supposed to. Do a skin exam every month. Guys are not as good at it. So we have to see them ourselves. I follow them if they have a lot of dysplastic nevi every three months. Photography is tricky. I'm not a big fan of it. I, I like it in a setting where you can have very rigorous parameters. You know, where, where I trained, we had a photo studio and patients would be set really in, 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 different, in the same angles and taking really accurate pictures. That would work. Taking a picture in my office, if I take a picture and have an angle that's a little bit different, that mole is different on a picture later on. So what does this mean for, and clinically, what does this mean medical legally as well? Can somebody now take the picture and say, are you sure this is the same? Look, it measures differently. So I don't do it in private practice. Uh, I think academic centers can do it and can do it successfully if they invest a lot of money and effort into it, which I don't think a lot of them actually do. I think it's done half, haphazardly. Prophylactic excisions for lesions are difficult to monitor. Again, if something looks a little bit funny and the patients can't see it and they don't want to worry about it, we take it out. Photo protection is very, very important. Um, both um, sunscreens, sun protection, um, sun avoidance, and actually now even systemic sun protection. Uh, excision of atypical or changing lesions is primordial. We take them out if they change. Changing lesion is one of the most important uh, factors, actually, of when you look at a dysplastic nevus or any nevus. If it's changing, we need to figure out why. Okay. So, again, what is the prognosis? Do they all go on to become melanoma? No, they don't. But we do know that people with a lot more dysplastic nevi than other people have a lot more chance of, become, of having melanomas. And families with malignant uh, or dysplastic nevus syndrome have a higher rate of melanoma than, uh, than others. Um, so people with, with uh, melanoma kindred who have dysplastic nevi 
and have a very high melanoma history have very high risk, as up to 100% risk, of having melanomas uh, later on in life. So we can be very, very careful with their moles. And those who actually have dysplastic nevi without the family history of melanoma can have a 7 to 70 um, fold increase of melanoma risks. So we always talk to them about this. We tell them it's just the mole that's abnormal. A lot of people have them. They're not necessarily going to become melanoma, but we have to look at them more carefully because they have a higher risk of melanoma. Also, use this as a, as a good occasion to discuss sun protection and sun avoidance and all that. Okay. Any questions so far? So let's talk about melanomas. So melanomas don't happen only in the skin. Again, the melanocytes are not only in the skin. So we have melanocytes that can become malignant in the skin, eyes, ears, GI tract, leptomeninges. 4% of all skin cancers are melanomas. 75% of cancer, oh, sorry, <coughs> of skin cancer-related deaths are melanomas as of 2001. It's the seventh most common cancer um, as of 2001. This has increased dramatically since then. And the lifetime risk in the U.S. is one, 1 to 70. I think it's higher now. Australia is the one with the highest prevalence. Arizona, where I practiced for a while, Arizona is second. So areas with high sun um, and um, high sun exposure. People with a lot more leisure and have a lot more sun exposure. So sun does play a role. <coughs> we don't understand the pathology very well. It can be from precursor nevus, so a DN could develop into melanoma. However, 50% come de novo. There's, you know, when we see melanomas, especially in female patients, areas that have never seen the sun, that's a de novo melanoma. We don't know why it's there. It's not from the sun, at least. We know that. Um, it could be for many things. And the risk factors include fair complexion, sun exposure, blistering sunburns is important uh, as, a, as a history to take. Anybody who has a lot of, by the way, a lot of freckles on their shoulder, even if they tell you no, they've had some blistering sunburns when they were younger. So freckling on the shoulder to me is important. Uh, changing moles and genetic markers are also things to consider. So some studies were done, and sunburns have showed an increase in melanoma, melanin melanoma. So some statistics have been done, and some, some epidemi epidemiologic studies have been done. And solar exposure during adulthood also increases the chance of melanoma. So Australia is a very interesting uh, country when it comes to studies of melanoma. One, they're very, very, very aware of it. They're very aware of sun exposure. They're very aware of sun protection. You cannot build a building unless you have a plan about shade around the building. Um, their sunscreens are more rigorously tested because melanoma is a high, has a high incidence in Australia. Now, also, Australia is an immigrant country where the immigrants mostly, at least for a long time, were fair-skinned. So it was an easy population to follow. And what they found was that the people who moved to Australia before they were age 10, who immigrated to Australia before they were age 10, had a much higher likelihood of getting melanoma than if they moved after age 10. And the difference mostly is that you had a lot of sun exposure at a younger age versus a later age. So let's talk about genetic factors. If you have two first-degree relatives with melanoma, you increase its risk. Uh, and there's some certain genes, I won't get into that today, but certain genes also can increase the risk of melanoma. So when a patient is diagnosed with melanoma in our office, one of the first things we say, other than, you know, do a bunch of the stuff we'll talk about later, is talk to your kids, make sure nobody else has melanoma in the family for history, and then talk to your kids and have everybody get checked. Because that means 
Not that they did anything wrong, but that means that they are at a higher risk of melanoma, to get melanoma in the, uh, in the family. So, what are the other risk factors? Again, some melanomas arise from nevi, both acquired and congenital. Therefore, if you have a lot of dysplastic nevi, that changes your risk of melanoma. If you have a solitary dysplastic nevus, you have twice the risk of melanoma. If you have 10 or more dysplastic nevi, you have 12 times the risk of melanoma. If you have a bunch of non-dysplastic nevi, so one of these moly people, moles all over the place, but they're all okay, you still have about twice the risk of melanoma. Mostly, if you have a lot of moles, and if a lot of them look funny, you are at high risk for melanoma, so we follow them more carefully. People who have dysplastic nevi need to be followed more carefully in your practice. Risk factors, red and blonde hair, family history of melanoma, actinic keratosis, freckling on the upper back. Again, this means pretty sunburn when you were younger. Um, three or more blistering sunburns prior to age 20, and three or more years of outdoor summer jobs during teen years. If you look at all these, every one of them is related to the sun. These are the things that we understand somewhat. We have a lot we don't understand about melanoma, but these are risk factors we understand. So sun exposure is important, sun protection is important at an early age, and that is something we discuss with all our patients. Race, primarily white individuals, not only white individuals, but primarily white individuals. Slight mere predilection, and usually in the 50s, that's when they're discovered, okay? Um, it is, however, most, the most common cancers in women 25 to 29 years old, second to breast cancer for women 30 to 34 years old. Every female patient in my office gets undressed. They might not like it. I have female PAs, it helps me out. But every female patient gets a full skin exam the first time, unless they really don't want to. At least they're offered the full skin exam. Maybe not the first visit, maybe we get it where you get a good relationship. Because, again, females tend to have melanomas below the waist. 40% of their melanomas are below the waist. And females sometimes have it in areas that have never seen the sun. So even with all the tanning beds, uh, like epidemics, I call it, and sun exposures, female women get it in areas that don't see the sun. So they're not really aware of it, okay? And you don't really look at your left butt cheek very often. So somebody has to look at it. <coughs> okay. <laughs> Clinical history. Now that's an obvious melanoma. Please biopsy this. Anybody would not biopsy this? Okay. The ABCD signs. Bleeding, itching, ulceration, pain, childhood sunburn history, family history. I'd add to this, my patient is telling me. Patients sometimes tell you things, and I don't know what it is, in my opinion, and this is not something scientific. If you ask again, I won't be able to reproduce it. But they tell you something, and if they're concerned about a patient, or about, sorry, about a mole, or about a lesion, if they're telling you, I don't know about this, it's itching, I'm not, I just want it out, take it out. It takes two seconds to do. Take it out. And you'd be surprised how much people are more in tune with their body than we think. Okay. So, let's talk about histologic subtypes of melanoma. We have superficial spreading melanoma, nodular melanoma, acral lentiginous melanoma, lentigo malignant melanoma, and then melanomas in other places, like uh, some of the, in the mucosa, uh, desmoplastic melanomas, and, and others. These are the rare ones. The last two are, are the rare ones. Superficial spreading melanoma is 70% of all the melanomas we see. It's usually in light-skinned people. 
um, mostly and frequently on the legs of women and upper back of men, uh, usually in the fourth or fifth decade of age, slowly changing lesions. Usually these are ones that we can catch hopefully early, unless they've been ignored for a long time. They're deeply pigmented macule or plaque with some variegation or regular borders. This doesn't look that impressive, but it was a melanoma. The nodular melanoma is the second type, the second most common type, but up to 30%. Uh, usually in midlife as well, usually de novo, and usually on the trunk, head, and neck. They can be dark blue, they can be um, blue-red, they can be many things. They actually, if you can see here, living in Georgia, I see a lot of potential melanomas that end up being ticks, but that's how they look like. I have a bunch of pictures, but I didn't want to add them in there. They're kind of gross. 5% of the nodular melanomas are amelanotic, and these are scary, because these do not look like melanomas. Acrolentigenous melanomas usually happen in darker skinned people, uh, palms, soles, or beneath the nail plate. Um, it's thought to be more aggressive and with poorer prognosis. Now, not sure, by the way, it's poorer prognosis because it's aggressive or because it takes us a long time to diagnose it. A lot of these streaks, at least in dark individuals, um, sorry, nope. A lot of these streaks in dark individuals are actually normal variants. So people may not come to get seen until it becomes like this, and by then it's kind of the cat's out of the bag. For some reason, when you look at subungual melanomas, mostly are on the great toe. Why, I can't tell you. I tried to look it up, and I can't, I can't figure out. I don't think there's been any studies showing why. Lentigo malignant is actually the least common out of all of them. We see quite a bit of it. They are the ones that you get patients, and I say you because this happened to me, that tell you there's something there that's bothering them, and they look at it, it looks like an SK sometimes, and, but they say it's changing, we don't like it, and we don't like to biopsy the face that much, so we tend to push it. I would take a small piece, just on one side, just to see, see what it shows, and, and a lot of them, and not a lot of them, but some of them end up being um, lentigo malignant melanoma. These happen at an older age, uh, about 65 plus. Um, they're slow. They're slow, so we have time. You can observe something and see what happens with these. They're not very fast moving. Uh, they can be large, they can be flat. Uh, they're tough to clear uh, because you have, it's much larger than what you can see with the naked eye. So doing Mohs on these, Mohs surgery on these is something that some people do. I used to do quite a bit of it and I no longer do just because I found that, and I might actually say something that's not PC, but in, in my practice, and actually in a lot of my colleagues' practice, we end up doing the Mohs and then taking an extra, um, an extra layer for fixed uh, and for permanent sections. And if I'm gonna do this, I might as well do staged excision. I think, I think we get the same thing. We do stay. I, so in my practice, something like this gets, we do the wood light and we look and see if, if, you know, if we can get a good, a good understanding of the margins. Then we take a five millimeter out and we send them for, um, for permanent sections while we leave it open uh, over a few days. And it works out well. Any questions so far? Now those three are the easy ones. We know how to find these. You know, we're trained to find these. These are the hard ones. Mucosal melanoma, malignant blue nevi, which by the way is a whole different thing. Blue nevi are benign. We consider them benign. But you can have them metastasized even when they're benign to the lymph nodes. So it's really, it's, it's a difficult thing to explain to a patient what a blue nevus is. It's benign, but sometimes acts funny. But sometimes it actually is 
really a blue nevus melanoma. Um, giant congenital nevi are very, very tough. Um, you have to look at them and you'll see some change. You'll see things grow within them. You can have melanoma within it. Clear cell sarcoma and amelanotic melanoma are also very, um, very tough to find. So both of these are melanomas, actually. Okay. Any questions so far? So what do we do? How do we detect melanomas? There's really not a single feature that's diagnostic. I don't have a magic uh, bullet or something that says, if this, therefore melanoma. A lot of it has to do with, a mul with multiple factors, and also a lot of it has to do with the feel. Sometimes just something doesn't look right, and that's where what, what our training gets us to do, and actually the volume of melanomas that we see. The um, ABCDEs of melanoma, E being change, so asymmetry, border, color, diameter, and E being the change. Some um, dermoscopic findings will lead us to biopsy. I never let a dermoscope make me not biopsy something. Uh, I do have it bi make me biopsy things I'm kind of on the fence on sometimes. But if you have a feeling that you should biopsy something, go ahead and biopsy it. These are easy. These are melanomas. We would call these a mile away. But these are melanomas as well, every one of these. So when there's any doubt, when there's any issue, just do a biopsy. It doesn't take that much to do. OK. So how do we diagnose? What kind of biopsies do we do? Ideally, an excisional biopsy with two, two, two to three millimeter margin would be best for the pathologist. They'd like you for that. Um, punch or incisional biopsies of the area that looks the worst uh, can also be done. Um, and when we look at it, we look at Breslow depth, ulceration, Clark's level, regression, mitoses, and some staining as well to see what the staging of the melanoma is. And that plays a lot uh, into what the prognosis will be. But what do we do? When I have somebody who I have now diagnosed suspect of melanoma, we do a history, we do a total body, skin, and lymph node examination. And I mean really total body, skin, and lymph node examination. Do the lymph nodes, you'd be surprised what you can find. Um, and then we send them to surgery, or we do it ourselves, depending on what the thickness of the melanoma is. And I like to do basic labs, uh, including an LDH and a chest X-ray. Not necessarily because I think they're going to have melanoma uh, in, their, in their lungs at that point, but I like to have these as baseline. So, you know, people who are in Arizona and who have uh, valley fever and coxie and, and they have a granuloma there, it's good to have it documented up front, so nobody takes half a lobe off five years later because they think melanoma just showed up. Does that make sense? Um, CT, MRIs, and all these we don't usually do. Uh, that much is not as needed with melanoma unless you're really getting to fully metastatic melanoma. The staging, um, the staging is done by, I mean, the, the staging criteria are done by the uh, American Joint Committee uh, on Cancer, uh, AJCC. This is the most uh, recent one. 1A is less than one millimeter, no original lymph nodes. 1B is one to two millimeters. Once ulceration is present, that's how important ulceration is, they automatically go to two. Doesn't matter if it's 0.1 millimeters. If it's ulcerated, it goes to two, because that's a bad prognostic factor. Stage two is one to four millimeters, but no lymph nodes. Stage three is regional lymph nodes, and stage, stage four is distant metastases, okay? 
that's where all the research is right now, stage four, and actually uh, stage three as well. How do we do it? How do we cut it? We do the MISs mostly. We do some of the uh, less than one millimeters as well. 0.5 centimeters for melanoma in situ. And if you talk about melanoma in situ with pathologists, you'll have some that tell you that severe dysplastic is pretty much melanoma in situ and vice versa. The treatment for severe dysplastic nevus and melanoma in situ is pretty much the same. Less than one, one millimeter is one centimeter um, margins with or without sentinel lymph node biopsy. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. One to two millimeters is one to two centimeters with sentinel lymph node biopsy. I usually take two centimeters in my practice. And two to four millimeters is two centimeters and lymph node biopsy, central lymph node biopsy. Anything more than four millimeters central lymph node biopsy is worthless at this point. You take the lymph nodes. Again, most surgery we talked about, um, plus or minus, uh, some people still do it, uh, quite a bit actually of it, and I, I decide not to. All right. Sentinel lymph node biopsy. This is something where you refer out. We don't do sentinel lymph node biopsies. And what's important when you refer out is not the quality of the surgeon, although it is very important. So you have to have a good surgeon, but you have to have also a good surgeon who's doing the surgery in a hospital that does a lot of sentinel lymph nodes. Because sentinel lymph node biopsies rely dramatically uh, on the pathologist in the hospital and the, the ability of the hospital who's doing this to actually do good frozen sections on lymph nodes. It's very important. So it needs to be a hospital that doesn't do it just every now and then. It needs to be a hospital that does it a lot. And every city has an academic center or has a hospital or two that do a lot of it. And these are the ones where I refer my patients to. Now, the guidelines for sentinel lymph node biopsies, I don't know if you could read that. They're actually not very um, clear. They're not very clear because there's a lot of discussion about it. A lot of, you know, anything less than 0.75 millimeters usually doesn't get a sentinel lymph node biopsy. I say usually, because if somebody's 35 years old and has 0.69 millimeters uh, thickness, you know, when you get the at least with other things that, come, that are involved, history of melanoma in the family, sentinel lymph nodes usually gets considered seriously and a lot of times gets done. But the, um, the guidelines are less than 0.75 millimeters, no sentinel lymph nodes. Um, between 0.75 or 0.76 and 1 millimeters, a lot of discussion happens. Do we do it, do we not? A lot of it has to do with the age of the patient and the other risk factors. More than 1 millimeters, yeah. And then when it gets too thick, the assumption is that you have to take all, those, all the lymph nodes anyway. So how do you do it? Has anybody witnessed that? Has anybody done a sentinel lymph node? Good. It's pretty cool, actually. So we inject dyes. We inject a blue dye. We inject also radioactive dye. The patient turns blue and pees blue for a couple of days afterwards, so you gotta let them know that. Um, and you send them the sentinel lymph node, so the dye gets, goes through the lymphatics to what we think is the primary lymph node, or the first lymph node. The first lymph node. So it doesn't have to be only one lymph node. It's the first one or two or three that absorb the dye that get it first. And then you take it out. So what's important, by the way, in these is that you don't wanna have, you don't wanna mess up the lymphatic system too much before you send them out. So my patients, usually, if I'm going to do sentinel lymph nodes, if I'm considering it, I let the, uh, so the surgeon, the general surgeon or the oncology uh, surgeon do the whole thing, cut the cancer and do the sentinel lymph nodes. If for some reason, and that can happen sometimes, they cannot get in uh, for a long time to see the surgeon or something where it happens, they're going, to delay, uh, they're going to delay the procedure and the patient just wants this melanoma out of their, out of their skin, then I do the cut, we do the excision with the appropriate margin, and we try as much as possible not to undermine too much, which makes it difficult for us. 
because if you take a big cut, you want to have some undermining to be able to close it nicely. So you explain that to the patient. But ideally, the person who does the sentinel lymph nodes should cut the melanoma at the same time. OK, so what else do we do? We send them to a bunch of people, especially when it's, when it's a uh, high breast depth. Surgical oncology, medical oncology, nuclear medicine, pathology, radiation oncology. A lot of these guys come into play when we talk with about melanoma, and we are one of them. So when we talk about prognostic factors, the traditional ones have been tumor thickness, histologic ulceration, that's a big, big negative prognostic factors, and lymph node involvement. And depending on, um, on the staging, the prognosis or the survival rate is very different. So stage one and two survival rates differ depending on the breast low depth. So if you have stage one and two, and less than one millimeter depth, you have about 95% survival rate. We'll talk about this in a bit uh, as well to talk about some new uh, data that we have. Stage one to four millimeter, stage one to two with up to four millimeters, you have about an 84, 68 to 84 five-year survival rate. That's still pretty good. More than four millimeters at stage one and two, um, 56 survival rate, 56 percent, sorry, survival at five years. And ulcerations drops all of these. Again, ulceration, you go straight to two. Stage three, 36 to 40 percent survival at five years. 10 years, 32 to 36 percent. And stage four, um, the median survival rate of stage four about nine months. So that's not usually a good thing. And the five-year survival rate is about 6 percent. And a lot of the uh, drugs we'll talk about in a second actually are aiming to increase survival rate of these patients. I rarely have this discussion with my patients. Most of the time, the medical oncologist or the surgical oncologist has it with them once the staging happens. So they're back to see me after all this conversation has been done, but we also make sure that we have the paperwork and we have the understanding of what they've been talked to about. Okay, any questions before I jump into the stage four? So stage four is interesting. Stage four, that's when the patients embark into a, a big, um, life trip, if you may. Many, many uh, clinical studies, uh, MD Anderson, University of Iowa, Mayo, they, they end up all over the place when they have stage four. A lot of things are being done um, with stage four patients. We have had a lot of therapy that has been tried and is being tried, is being done with these patients. Uh, chemotherapy, uh, immunotherapy. Uh, these don't necessarily work that well. You know, three to six months, extension of life. Immunotherapy, if they work great, great. Uh, if they don't, they don't. Interferon, interleukin-2. Um, and then we have the newer ones, the targeted immunotherapy. And we'll talk about these in a second. So all of these, so Zelbaraf, Vemurafenib, uh, Ipilimumab have been approved in 2011. This has just happened. There are new things that are done. There's also, by the way, and this is old, limb infusion and perfusion. So when you have melanoma that's of the limbs that you, where you start having, uh, especially in transit metastases, they do an infusion or perfusion of, of melphalan usually, um, and pretty much you, you almost get the, uh, the leg hypoxic in one of them and just pump it with melphalan and hope it kills the melanocytes. Uh, it has a risk of amputation, by the way. Uh, so they're high risk as well. Okay. So let's talk about the adjuvant therapy. Again, vemurafenib was approved in February 2011, very recently by the FDA. 
It's a BRAF enzyme inhibitor. Uh, these are the new ones. This is kind of the, the research led to the BRAF, to BRAF inhibition. So it's BRAF in, enzyme inhibitor. Uh, and it goes after the BRAF mutation, which happens in up to 50% of melanomas. By going after this mutation, we program the cell death of the melanoma cell lines. That's what it's supposed to do. Unfortunately, like a lot of time in cancer, resistance to the, to the drug happens within six to nine months, very fast. Uh, and how do they do that? They actually, the melanoma cells bypass the whole BRAF uh, pathway. All what they do actually is they, they go a little bit below it or a little bit more uh, distal on the pathway and pick up where they left. So in six to nine months, these patients start regressing in at times. They have some side effects. They get photosensitive, hair loss, weight loss, fast-growing KAs. Uh, that's impressive. These are, this is really what we end up potentially seeing in our office. People who are on, on a BRAF inhibitor and come to see us with these KAs are showing up out of the blue and very fast. At 2011, this extended the survival rate by 9 to 12 months as a monotherapy. So all this is really for not that much extension, but that's what we get. 9 to 12 months actually is quite a bit in somebody's life. This is a patient who's in Zelbaraf of mine with a static melanoma. Um, and this is a KA. Actually, all these are KAs. This one, this one, this one, this one. I took this one out, cleared the margins. Within two weeks, he had, he had a KA, KA growth on the whole, and it was a big one. It was up something like this. And this was kind of the scar. And I don't have the picture here, I should have added, but, but he had KA on the, on the surgical margin. Go ahead. His mom was actually in the toe. Now, 2013, this year, two new um, BRAF pathway inhibitors were approved. Dabrafenib, which is also a BRAF inhibitor, and uh, trametinib, which is uh, also approved in 2013. And it's on the, uh, it's a MEK inhibitor, which is also on the BRAF pathway. So having combination, by the way, so what's happening with this, because the second one, because trametinib actually is acting more distally, the FDA doesn't do that very often. The FDA is grant, has granted a combination therapy a priority review. Because now the hope is that we'll get the BRAF inhibitor, whether it's one or Zelbaraf, and we'll get the uh, trametinib together, therefore preventing one of the runaway pathways, preventing one of the resistance pathways for the melanomas. Okay, so we're, this is happening right now. Not done yet, probably we'll know about it in, in 2013. At the same time as these were approved, uh, a BRAF assay was also approved to detect the um, BRAF V600E or V600K mutations in the melanoma cell lines. Things are moving fast in melanoma. What's most exciting also is this. I'll tell you about epilimumab. Sorry, epimilumab. Too late. Too late in the day. I'll do the 8 o'clock next year. Epimilumab is, a, uh, is approved in 2011. It's an anti-CTLA-4. CTLA-4 is a negative regulator of the T-cell uh, activation. So melanomas produce this and then uh, prevent T-cells from attacking them. This is an anti-CTLA-4. Okay, so it's an anti-suppressor. Um, so it leads to an increased T-cell activation and proliferation and increased antitumor response. It has potential side effects, including 2% death, where you have a, almost a T-cell storm. 
things go crazy and people die. 2%. So when you do this, when a patient is doing this, they have a 2%, two chance of 100 of dying from it. What's most interesting is this. At the recent European Cancer Congress, we thought we'd have, with something like this again, same thing, six months or so, uh, nine months, maybe 12 months imp improvement or, or in, um, in uh, disease-free life or survival rate, up to 10%, up to 10 years. So we think now, if you react well, if you're not one of the unlucky people who end up here, um, some, a subset of this population can actually increase the survival rate by 10 years. This was unheard of in melanoma until this year. Nobody thought you could get a stage four to survive 10 years. Okay. Any questions about these? By the way, we don't usually give these, but we have to know who to refer to get these, and we also have to know what the side effects are because the patients will come back with these, especially if they live 10 years. Any questions about these? Now, another thing that has been recent as well is a, some new prognostic tools. This is gene expression prognostic rating, prognostic indicator, uh, sorry. So what they do, they take the biopsy and they look at 31 genes from the primary tumor and see if they're expressed or not. And then they classify the tumor, sorry, that's blue and blue, that, was, that wasn't very smart of me. Um, they classify the tumors as class one, and that's a low risk of metastasis within five years, or class two, which is a high risk of metastasis within five years. This is all stage one and two tumors. So we're looking at stage one and two tumors. Because the truth is, we all have had patients who had very thin Breslow melanomas, where you think, okay, they're fine, and end up metastasizing. And patients who we think, okay, that this person is probably going to have issues very fast, and nothing happens. And this is trying to elucidate why. It's new. It's just got approved, so I don't have a lot of experience with this. But this is what's trying to see, trying to differentiate relying on gene expression, um, the behavior of melanomas, okay, in stage one or two. So these are some cases. Two patients, age 70 and 66, uh, axial uh, lesion site, tumor sickness 0.13 to 0.15. No big deal, right? This would be then a stage 1A, very early melanoma. These are the patients, oh, you'll be fine. First one, both of them have, by the way, a, a uh, survival rate of 95.7%, very good survival rate. First one has no metastases in six years. The other one gets a metastasis in the lungs and then brain within one year. Why? Doesn't make sense. With this system, this one was classified as class one, looking at the genes, and this one was classified as a class two, looking at the genes. So class one, uh, with this new prognostic tool is less than 3% metastatic uh, chance. Class 2 is 69% chance of metastasis. Same thing here. 1B, 1.35 tumor thickness. This one was classified as 3% and no metastases at 10 years. This one was classified as 69%, class 2, within 0.6 years. Had a metastasis in the lung. 2A, same thing. Class one, four years later, no metastases. Class two, two years later, metastatic to the lung. Is this an answer? Maybe, maybe not. What this tells us is that genetics and gene expression is really where melanoma is going. And that's what already is. Uh, Zelberaf, all these, 
are actually from gene. It's, it's always discovered from a gene mutation that when first discovered a few years ago, nobody thought much of it. Three, four years later, we had something that was going against that gene mutation. Things are moving very fast. It's a really good field to be in. Okay. What else in 2013? One, we found out that iPhone apps are not going to take away our jobs. And then two, can we or can we not make a difference? What is it that we can do? What do we do, actually? So this was looked at. This was looked at in, in February 2012, last year. And this showed the mortality rate uh, in patients with melanoma um, looking at the number of dermatologists or dermatology professionals in the area. So when you look at areas with 0.001, so really not much, uh, to one derm per 100,000 uh, people, you have a 35% reduction uh, in mortality. Okay? If you look at one to two derms per 100,000 people, you have a 53% reduction in mortality. Anything over two, we're useless. But us being there makes a difference. What this tells me is that we are essential in, diagnose, in diagnosing, and we are essential in treating melanoma. We're the guys who should find this. Primary care can find it, but we really are the guys who see a lot of this and should call this, okay? So what do we do? We have to be aware that even if it's a thin melanoma, 3% of our patients develop a second melanoma within three years. We tell them that. Um, and that you have a higher risk for people with a lot of DNs, dysplastic nevi. I've had patients who, I think I diagnosed three melanomas in three years. Doesn't make you feel good, it makes you feel very nervous about that patient, but you see them very often. And they should look at their, at their moles. So serial examination of the skin, palpation of the sentinel lymph nodes, monthly self-exams we talked about, talk about the, the, the family. And what do you do in the melanoma visit? We do a full body examination every three months for the first year, and then maybe every other visit for the second year. We do a lymph node examination, not just the regional ones, we do a full lymph node examination. We do liver, abdominal palpation if needed. All this is really um, guided by the history. And when I say we look everywhere, we look everywhere. Look in the mucosa, look between the toes, look under the skin folds. Do a full review of system. Your medical assistant should help you with that up front, and I always review it afterwards. Any headaches, any doubled vision, any cough, bone pain, weight loss, abdominal pain, any lumps or bumps anywhere. Ask them, and explain to them why you're asking this. Because I know it might be, you know, people might think, oh, we're kind of jinxing things. No, this is to know if you have any metastasis. Because the patient answers it a lot more um, Acutely, it seems like, once you tell them why you're asking this, right? So ask these questions every time. And also explain to them what it is, so in case it happens, you know, the week after you see them and it becomes a chronic cough, don't wait three months to tell me. Tell me right away. Can remember, that patient was less than one millimeters, metastasized within a year. It can happen. LDH, I like, because it shows uh, injury in the body. Chest x-ray as well as the baseline we talked about. And really, look for the ABCDEs for suspicion of melanoma. Look at things. Remember that sometimes it's tough to recognize a melanoma. Again, these are the easy melanomas. But also not everything is a melanoma. 
So not every mole is a bad mole, and we have to explain this to patients sometimes. I've had patients who come in and want every mole taken out. That's not how it works. We can't do that. Just look at the moles, listen to the patients, look for the ugly duckling, duckling sorry, look at any changes, and, um, or anything that the patient doesn't like. So if the patient is really worried about moles, I ask them, which one really worries you and why? And if it needs to be, I'll take it. I'll take one in a while. Okay. Anything that you guys have any questions about so far? Because we're done. Go ahead. Um, then you. Go ahead. The breast cancer melanoma correlation? Yes. It's, I mean, you know, a lot of genetics happen. I think a lot of cancers um, and a lot of syndromes can have, can have a higher cancer in different, in different things. Um, I think women should have mammograms every year. I think women uh, should check their skin every year. Uh, men as well. So it doesn't make me... Um, doesn't make me do anything different. I don't go hunting for breast cancer. But I make sure that they actually do their regular, uh, their regular physical, their regular uh, annual exam when it comes to that. If you have a patient with breast cancer, their history of breast cancer, yep. does routine mammogram You know, it's funny. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, somewhat, um, it's somewhat difficult to answer, but I bypass that by discussing, by discussing skin, skin, um, skin exams with everybody especially with fair skin and sun damage. And that's what we should do anyway. Go ahead. I do every three months for the first year. Depending on what you find every three months, then it depends. After that, I go to every six months. And, mm -hmm. and honestly, if it were me, so guidelines aside, and I don't think they that you have, but which were me, I had a melanoma, I'd be seen every six months. And I tell my patients that. You know, after, I won't be mad at you if you show up every year after the third year, or I won't think you're doing anything wrong, but if it were me and I had a melanoma, I'd be seen every six months. It's, it's good for investment. Go ahead. Can you repeat that? Yeah. You have you have an you know it's it's you may be able to see a little bit more of a pigmentation under Wood's lamp where where you can actually you know get a better feel of what the of what the so the question sorry was you know pretty much how do you use Wood lamp for lantigo maligna right. More or less, okay. So when you're excising melantigo maligna, you can do two things. You can do the Mohs, Mohs surgery, where then you follow, or, or, you can try to do, um, or you can try to do the stage excision, which is what I do. I, I do the stage excision at this point. And really, your, your goal is to cut the patient as little as possible. So you really want to take five millimeter outside of what you think, what you can see is the, is the largest margin. When you look at it, when you look at melantigo maligna, um, let me see if I can get that. If you look at melantigo maligna, um, with the naked eye, you'll see what the margin is. And then if you look at it under Wood's lamp, you will see more pigmentation that, go, that goes sometimes quite a ways out. And that's where it was difficult, lenticum maligna. It goes quite a ways more than, um, than actually you could see. So this patient right here may have pigmentation all the way up to here, which I've seen very often. So if I were to cut you know, five millimeter from here, 
I'd be right into Zalantica malignant as well. So the Woods lamp is not an exact science. You look at it and, and you see a little bit more of pigmentation and then you draw you know, what you can see in the Woods lamp, kind of here. And then after that, I take another five millimeters. So it makes me take a bigger cut from the get-go. Go ahead. I get that as well. That's, but that's just a little something that I do that might be a little different. But CBC, CMP, like that. Now, most of this, by the way, gets done by the oncologist. And I always give the oncologist the first, almost the first right to refusal. You know, I'll, I'll have them do it. They see the oncologist. I get, I get everything. And if they haven't done it for some reason, because remember, oncologists see a lot more um, aggressive things sometimes. So one millimeter uh, melanoma might be nothing to them. Um, if it were me, I'd want it done, so then I'd bring my patient back, I'd take a look at what was done, and if a chest x-ray wasn't done, I'd get his chest x-ray baseline, I'd get an LDH as well baseline. Usually the other ones I would be missing, if something would be missing. Go ahead. So, metastatic melanoma with no skin primary, um, like any other patient. This is, well, it could be actually regressed nevus, so it does increase the risk of actually skin, a melanoma, a regressed melanoma that you can't see. It could also be a, a GI melanoma. It could be many, many things. So you, you do full skin exams, if, if anything, for their, for their benefit, for their peace of mind, because they want to make sure they don't have it somewhere else. But that's how it would treat them. I would do it on a yearly basis, unless they're, again, they have metastatic melanoma that without a primary, yearly basis is, is, might not be too many times. So I see them as, I, it depends on the patient, it depends on their feeling. You know, I have, I have a much easier time and I'm much more uh, ready to take, to take away a seborrheic keratosis or to biopsy or freeze seborrheic keratosis uh, on a patient who, is, uh, who has metastatic cancer than a patient who isn't. Because that's the one thing they have control over. You know, they may, have, they may be dying of a cancer, but they have this SK that bugs them and they want it off and I can do it. So I do it. So a lot of this actually is guided by the patient in my practice. You mentioned that um, people develop dysplastic nevi at, at the end of the first decade. Can they develop sooner than that? Yes. Okay. So I've seen dysplastic nevi on, on kids that were, um, that were less than 10 years old. Um, usually, though, the majority of them start, you know, the second, you know, late in their teens. You start having some funky ones. Do you worry more than the younger they are, or...? Not necessarily. I mean, if, uh, if somebody, if a, if a parent brings me their kid who is nine years old with something on the scalp uh, and they tell me it's been changing and it looks funny and hasn't been just growing in this with the, with the kid, I, I would consider doing a biopsy. And then depending on what the biopsy shows, we go from there. If it shows a normal mold, perfect. If it shows severely dysplastic, we take it out and then we see the kid um, regularly. I've, I've had kids with odd melanomas that were very young, eight years old, seven years old. Also, you have to remember where I trained, so I saw all the weird stuff. Go ahead. It's new. This is brand new. This is probably the first time you hear about it because it's brand new. Um, it's a company that does it. Uh, the people who are ordering, I don't know if it's really, it has a high uptake or not. Um, I'm not, I'm not, promoting nor, nor putting my name behind that test is just something that's there. So I think, again, these are for stage one and stage two. I think most oncologists now still follow the AJCC guidelines, so they give them that, and I don't think a lot of them are ordering that test. It's not a cheap test. 
Um, but I think it's the wave of the future. That's what we're doing with many things, not just with this. I mean, there's a test that tells you if somebody, genetic test that tells you if somebody um, is a high Coumadin metabolizer or not. That's not, doesn't have a high uptake, but it's there. So if, you're, if you wanted your patient who's gonna be on Coumadin to actually get that test before they go through the, you know, the whole dose thing, up and down, up and down, they can get it, it's there. Um, people who would order that test more than likely would be the oncologist at this time. But you need to know about this because patients read about this. If you actually look at the website, and if you look at, at, the, at, the, um, at the press releases, the press releases a lot are, are directed at us, but they're also directed at the patient. So a patient will show up potentially with a full PDF that they can readily print that's for the patient to come and discuss with you that I want this test. So we need to know what this test is. Same thing is something I didn't mention here because I, I don't think it's a, great, it's a great thing, is something called Melafine, which is this, you know, this app, this not app, but this machine that's supposed to actually, have you guys heard about it? Okay. This machine is supposed to actually diagnose uh, melanoma. Uh, unfortunately, 30% of bad melanomas were, were, were put in as, or the machine said it was non-concerning. So there are things that we need to be aware of because our patients will be aware of. This um, the genetic testing, the prognostic, and prognostic genetic testing, um, I'm not sure about. I'm actually not even sure what this would do. So me, is it really important for me to do this to the patient? Now, I have a patient who's stage one uh, melanoma, 1A, who, has, who is a class two. Are we gonna do sentinel lymph node on this, on this patient? Are we gonna do the, the, um, the immunotherapies? Are we gonna do the full, the full thing on this patient? I'm not sure. It's, it makes, it's, it's very gray, and it's, it's, we still have to see how this is gonna be used. Go ahead. Yep. Yep. Five millimeters from melanoma in situ. Is, is what I do, that's what the guidelines are. And that's usually enough. Again, usually, it's melanoma, we don't know. And remember, melanoma in situ, if you show that pathology slide to 10 pathologists, I wouldn't be surprised if 10 called it severe dysplastic and, and or five called it severe dysplastic and five called it melanoma in situ, and vice versa. You show dysplastic, uh, severe dysplastic to 10 pathologists, five might call it melanoma in situ. And it's funny, a lot of it, if you start noticing, if you look at the reports, a lot of it is guided by the patient's age. They don't wanna call a 19-year-old and melanoma in situ. Just, you know, you just want, don't want to. And since the treatment is very similar, you just go severe dysplastic. Yes, ma'am? So what if a 40-year-old patient comes and tells us there is a new nevus, there is a mole here um, that's new, uh, and, it, and it looks fine? What do you do with it? It all depends on the patient. Um, if you are somebody who practices very conservatively from a medical legal standpoint, you biopsy that thing. Because if that's, a patient, if that's something that that patient shows you, and two years later, even if it were normal today, uh, two years later becomes a melanoma, you're in trouble. Because now you have a document you said it was nothing. You can't prove there was nothing then. Um, if the patient really wants it biopsied, I do it. This is really my practice, so it's not, there's no guidelines here. Okay, that's kind of what I would do. If the patient tells you, I really want it off and it's new and it wasn't there before, I mean, you take it off. Again, some of the melanoma, I've been surprised. Uh, one of my favorite patients, actually, my age, soccer player, a lot of things in common, came with a wart, wart-looking thing. And I was about to freeze it, except I could not figure out why he had a wart on the cheek. And then he said something about, yeah, it's been moving fast, so let me biopsy it. And it was a verrucous melanoma, a melanotic. Didn't look like a melanoma for the life of me. He just passed away. You just, 
never know. If it's that easy to do, my practice is biopsy it. Go ahead. Okay. Melanoma registry, it's a good thing to do if you want. I actually, <laughs> it's a lot of work sometimes. And the, are we talking the Medicare melanoma registry or the melanoma registry? Okay. It's, it's always good. I mean, uh, if you want to do it, you should. I think it's, it's good for the grand, for the, for the good of all melanoma patients. That's my melanoma registry kind of uh, opinion. Uh, but you don't have to, and a lot of people don't. Uh, the medical legal aspect of patients who do not follow up. We are in a babysitting country when it comes to physicians and physician assistants. If your patient who has a melanoma does not show up to their appointment and does not follow up, it is technically your problem, believe it or not. So what I do, uh, we call them, we make sure we document that we try to get them in, and um, if they don't show up, we send a certified letter. Uh, ideally, if you have the primary care, you send a letter to the primary care physician as well. Because this way there's records that you try to get them back in. Um, and I have a friend of mine who actually was sued unsuccessfully because the patient said he never told me it was a melanoma and never came back. And sure enough, the saving grace, because the patient also said, I never got a letter or you never sent a letter, you did that after the fact. Uh, you document all this after the fact. The saving grace was that the primary care physician also had received that letter around the same time we CC the primary care physician. So if you have a primary care physician or something like this, you CC them. This way, it's, and that's how you, you, know, you always have to think of closing the loop. You don't want to have to call, I mean, I would have 200 patients I would be calling all the time, people who don't follow up with skin cancer. But you, don't, you have to just get it out of your hand and you do everything you can. At the end of the day, I'm not gonna force them to come, to come back and do it. Plus, it's kind of harassment. They may be somewhere else, we don't know. They may just not have liked me and wanted to go see somebody else and want to call me back. I have no idea. But as long as you show that you tried everything, then you're fine. Yes? So the question is, what is the appropriate wait time if you're referring out to, um, to an institution to have a surgery and send a lymph node biopsy? There really isn't one. I've, it's, it's for the training. I've been trained in the way I do things from the day you were diagnosed, not the day of your biopsy, the day you were diagnosed to the day everything should be done should be about a month. If I have somebody who I'm referring to who can't get my patients in for three months, regularly, all the time, it's a melanoma, it's more than one millimeters, we need to find somebody else. That's kind of how I feel about it. So within a month, I like to have everything wrapped up from a surgical standpoint. Within a month. And, and you, I mean, the people I refer to here get them, in within, um, get them in within a week, two weeks. We send them in. Actually, what we end up usually doing is this. If I have a patient with melanoma, we have the diagnosis, we know they'll have to be Referred, we have to get them back in for me to discuss things because you want to call them over the phone and tell them this. We bring them back in as fast as possible. In the meantime, we already have started the referral process. We just tell them, please don't call them yet because they don't know about it. They don't, you, don't want, you don't want the, the surgical oncologist who they've never heard from to be the one calling them telling them, oh, by the way, you have a melanoma. I'm cutting it out. So we get everything started uh, at the same time. We bring them in. We let them know. We tell them that's what we've done. And... It's surprising how many patients tell me, well, I don't know, I have this and I have that. And I have to tell them, you have a melanoma, it's a deep one. Everything you have is secondary. That's when we have you there with them, go see them. And that's kind of how I put it to them. Go ahead. No. No in situs. I order it on anybody who's not an in situ, yes. And again, it's the baseline. I'm not looking. So the question is, do you order it on every melanoma, the LDH and the labs and all those? I don't do it on in situs. A lot of the times, the oncologists do it. The oncologists that work with me know enough that I'm going to do it eventually anyway, so they do it. Um, 
but anybody, again, I'm looking at these not to look for melanomas, but to have a baseline. So five years down the line, somebody can compare chest x-rays. Um, and this might be my coming from Arizona that makes me do this because, again, we, a lot of us have the granulomas from Coxie, and we don't want this to show up for the first time five years later, and then people really act up, act on it a little bit more than they should. Retinal exams. Um, does a melanoma of the skin mean that you're going to have a higher risk of melanoma in the eye? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't do it. Um, some patients actually do do it. They do everything. Once they have a melanoma, they read up on it, and they want to get a colonoscopy and the, whole, and the whole thing. But retinal exams are pretty easy to do, so if they want to do it, that's okay. Thank you so much.